is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. Dr. J. Allen Hynek played an important role in UFO history, and I will be talking with his son, Paul Hynek, about his memories of his father. Dr. Hynek was a young professor of astronomy when, in 1948, he was asked by the Air Force to help study UFOs. That job of his is now the subject of a wildly popular TV show, Project Blue Book. And for anyone who has not seen this show, be forewarned because it is not a true-to-life depiction of what really happened. Now, each episode does use an actual case as the basis for the script, but there is a lot of Hollywood razzle-dazzle that might frustrate anyone who takes this subject seriously. Now, all that said, there are some awesome cars and some amazing clothes in every episode. Now, the real Dr. Hynek, as he's portrayed in the TV series also, began as a skeptic and was actively debunking reports and doing that for the Air Force. But eventually he took this subject very seriously. Now, presently, with the popularity of the TV show, his son Paul has been speaking about his father, and his insights are fascinating. And in this episode, we talk about the TV show some, but I wanted to do my best to dig into some of the more elusive aspects of the UFO mystery and things that uh, Dr. Hynek was certainly tapped into. By all accounts, Dr. Hynek was a dedicated man who helped shape the way we think of UFOs. He also had a bit part in the 1977 movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and he was technical advisor on that film along with Dr. Jacques Vallée. He had a small cameo, and we do talk about that a little bit in this interview. There's one more little thing I want to I add here. Throughout the interview, Paul kept on referring to the actors, and the characters uh, on Project Blue Book, uh, that would be Dr. Alan Hynek and his wife Mimi, he referred to them over and over again as his TV mom and his TV dad. And I just thought that was such a, such a nice term. <laughs> I could tell he was, like, this was really nice for him. And I, and I recognized that. I wanted to point it out in the show. I did not, but I'm pointing it out here. You will hear it in his voice. Like, he's happy he has a TV mom and dad, <laughs> as he should be. So I'll leave it at that. Okay, now I need to apologize about one small detail. There are some sound quality issues. My voice comes through a little bit distorted at times. I I think I made the mistake of getting a little bit too close to the microphone. It's very minimal, but you may notice it. This audio conversation was recorded Tuesday, February 25th, 2020. Please enjoy. Paul, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. My pleasure, Mike. Happy to be here. Hey, I have to start this show out. Full disclosure, my father graduated from Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. And that plays a role in the history of UFOs, that small town. Yes, it does. And uh, yeah, go ahead and just fill in, because that was kind of a, a, like, almost a breaking point in your father's uh, thoughts. thinking about this subject yeah perhaps not as much as thinking as his public stance that that case uh was 1966 i believe with the girls dormitory and, and 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 others uh in which my father characterized it partially as possibly being explained by swamp gas and the press ran with that and he sort of got tarred with the the big brush stroke of explaining away the whole case as swamp gas, which angered the witnesses, including the local congressman at the time, Gerald Ford, who wrote a letter saying there should be a committee to investigate this, which was in part what led to the Condon Committee, which was the pretext under which the Air Force shut down Project Blue Book in 1969. Yes, and I I have actually read his initial quote, his initial statement, and it was a it it was not nearly as incendiary as it as it sort of turned out to be in the tabloids. My, and my to be fair, my father graduated I think in 1952, so he was nowhere near uh, Hillsdale during that time. So, yeah, okay, gotcha. 
Hey, and this is a very sophisticated audience, but give a quick rundown of your father and his role in UFO history. Sure. So UFOs was kind of my, my dad's side hustle. You know, he was an astronomer for his whole career, um, rocket scientist, astrophysicist, professor, um, worked on the proximity fuse in World War II, which was one of the largest or one of the most important technological developments in the war. Um, and in the 50s, was uh, under, Fred, under the direction of Fred Whipple, was the director of Operation Moonwatch, which placed observatories around the world, which are manned by citizen science teams to track artificial satellites. So they were the first ones to get a real good bead on Sputnik. So when Sputnik launched in October 1957, it was my father and these groups that he'd assembled and the telescopes that he'd helped develop that were tracking the initial positions and trajectory for Sputnik. So this would have been civilians with a with a telescope and a in a and a watch probably and a and a point on the map and everything like that giving coordinates and and so instead of a, like a high tech uh, infrastructure, it was just a very low tech bunch of civilian enthusiasts. Yeah, and um, and I recently read that uh, these this was the first sort of citizen science project like this of its kind that they actually helped refine the measurements of the size of the Earth. Oh, how interesting. Which I think is fascinating. Oh, I didn't know any of this. Yeah. There's a book that I just got called Keep Watching the Skies about Operation Moonwatch. Oh, how interesting. And does your, is your father featured in that book? Yes, he is. Oh. And it has the what's a, what I think is a wonderful picture that my family has had for a while of my father, along with Fred Whipple and another gentleman, on the cover of Life magazine, looking at this great big huge globe. Oh wow! He was quite a celebrity in in more fields. An F celebrity. That's that's maybe that's the right word to use. But he was certainly well known outside of the arena of UFOs. Yes, he was well known in astronomy uh, before UFOs, uh, and he was also he was widely interviewed in newspapers and TV and radio uh, as a popularizer of science. He felt it was very important for people to understand science. And he wrote thousands of articles. He wrote books on astronomy and astrophysics and was, yeah, was a fairly well-known media presence for his work in astronomy long before UFOs. You have now been going to conferences and talking and presenting at conferences about your memories of your father. And my question is, have you been bumping into people who knew your father at these conferences? Absolutely. I, I just came back from UFOCon 2020 in uh, San Francisco. And um, this is maybe the 10th conference I've spoken at or event. And I also host viewing parties for Project Blue Book. Um, and without fail, people will come up to me and say either, oh, your father was a wonderful man or he did very interesting work or I knew him or I worked with somebody who learned under him at Northwestern, uh, but it's a constant refrain. And at this most recent conference, I spoke twice, and before I uh, took the stage the second time, uh, Robert Perala mentioned an example where he went to the first UFO conference in 1978, also in San Francisco, and my father was there, and he was very happy to meet my father and, and tell him his personal experience. And while he's telling my father, recounting his close encounter with my father, someone's tapping him on his shoulder from behind. He finally turns around, and it was William Shatner. <laughs> um, I was just uh, filmed last Wednesday for his new show called Unexplained. Did you get to meet him? Uh, no, I didn't. I, I, was, I, I met the wonderful field producers. Okay. Now... Before doing this interview, I read the book, The UFO Report, and this is subtitled The Authoritative Account of the Project Blue Book Cover-Up. That was um, published in 1977, and that would have coincided, I think, with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Was that Did that book come out in conjunction with that movie on purpose, or? Uh, no, it was more the, my recollection was the publisher wanting my dad to come up with a new book. So he updated the prior work, The UFO Experience. I was actually amazed at how blunt your father was at kind of calling out the Air Force on 
yeah. on on what you know basically was a cover up. Yeah, and perhaps there's even a better way. If if only my father was here because he was so so good at coining phrases. Maybe there's another word than cover up, um, because it was almost like the Keystone Cops, right? And just sort of covering up means you have something. In this sense, a lot of times they didn't even want to look at it. Like, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, right? So they wouldn't even go to find something. Mm-hmm. So it was like the avoid up or something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, he spent 20 odd years with various projects, most like most notably Project Blue Book in the Air Force, with a whole lot of frustration, as, as you alluded to earlier, leading up to you know 1966 and swamp gas. So he pulled relatively few punches after his stint with the Air Force was over. And did he sign any kind of like non-disclosure agreement or have any kind of, was he privy to top secret information? I, I have to assume that he must have been like on the inside at least a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've actually read conspiracy websites that say that, you know, the sort of uh, conventional narrative that he was the closest astronomer to Wright Patterson was hogwash. And that it was because of his work in, and his top secret clearance from the war that led him to be involved with the Air Force. Um, I think it was pretty simple. I don't think the Air Force really cared. I think he fit the bill nicely. As we talked about, he was already pretty well known. His name would carry some clout in squashing UFO or flying saucer hysteria. And yes, he had he had security clearance, um, so he couldn't talk about everything. But, you know, a lot of Project Blue Book wasn't classified. And, you know, they and Project Blue Book itself released its case archives. So I don't think he felt limited too much in talking about it. I don't think they really much cared what he said after after some time. And that was that the subtitle in 1977. I tried to do a little background. I couldn't figure it out. The subtitle of the 1977 book was the authoritative account of the Project Blue Book cover up. So so that's actually a recent reprint. Uh, the, and that that sort of subtitle was not there on the original book. Ah, OK. That was my sense. Good, good. That seemed a little strong for 77. Yeah. 45 years. Yeah. Ago. Our friends at MUFON, and I can talk more about MUFON, noticed that there were pirate copies of my father's book being sold on Amazon. So they shut that down and they asked us to compile. So I actually compiled a forward with my siblings to go into this reprinted edition of the book. And the foreword is short and, and was nice. It was a wonderful nod to your father. Yeah. It was... Oh, good. Thank you. Now, you've done a ton of interviews similar to this, and much of those interviews have focused on the TV show. I don't want to go too deep into that because, uh, you know, I could point to a, a good friend of mine, Ryan Sprague, does a podcast called Somewhere in the Skies, and he talked a lot about the TV show. And yeah, we can uh, I'll, I'll direct people to that. I'll put a link to that in the show notes okay, here. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, we did talk. Right. How how does that house match the house you grew up in, the one in the show? Let me sort of go up to a mile high here, Mike. Um, I just I just think that that house is so quintessentially perfect for that era. So that's why I'm asking. It is. You know, my mother and father existed, thankfully. <laughs> the Air Force personnel are sort of amalgamations or close approximations of existing people. Many of the people that are involved in the cases, a lot of actual case reports uh, are real. Many of the incidents, especially in the, in the two-part Roswell season openers this season, are, are were reported. But so much of the show is dramatized or made up because it's just not that important. Like Nobody really cares what our house looked like, which looked nothing like that house, oh, by the way. Oh, that breaks my heart. <clears throat> um, and so... You know, my brother Joel and I are consultants on the show, and we've had quite a lot of interaction with everybody in the food chain, including my TV dad and TV mom, who are wonderful actors. And what we decided was that it was important to get the the authenticity of my mother and father so that the actors could understand what they were really like, such that when they would act in highly dramatized and stretched situations, the characters would still act more or less as our parents might have. But so much of the rest of the stuff, the props, my father being in an airplane crash, knowing, um, you know, flora in Kentucky and all that is just all made up. Ah, okay. 
they really stretch it pretty far on the show. And and I was initially I had I had one idea going into the show, like what to expect, and it didn't match at all. And I was I feel like I'm a pretty good student of of uh, UFO history, and I, there's a, lots of points when I have to just kind of go, hey, that, that's not right. So it's not meant to be a factual account. Think of it as a as a piece of fiction that's grounded in more reality than most pieces of fiction. Fair enough. Fair enough. Andrea, my partner, and I have been binge watching the series. I, I just every time that shows they're in your house, I just love the. There was a carpet. There was just this one carpet, and I was like, "Wow, that is one cool carpet." And I kind of nudged her the other night, and I said, "I got to ask him about that carpet. Did he really have that carpet in his house?" But sadly, I guess it's not so. so. No, and but you know, so virtually everything like that is is made up. Many of the incidents and things like that are made up. Some of the things are just uh, visualized accounts of what people reported and then there are things like in season in uh episode 10 of season one uh i'm watching laura Manel, my tv mom and she's got a a brown coat and this sort of turquoise brooch and i'm looking and say well that looks familiar oh that's right that's mom's it's because that was my mom's brooch that i had given to laura about a year and a half earlier and forgotten about oh how interesting and it's it's interesting because the character the actor has a ton of charisma the fellow who plays your father yeah. And um, it's kind of an odd thing because he's not like a cop or a tough guy or, you know, he's not Columbo, you know, but he's you can tell he's he's pulling the threads on a mystery. Let's let's put it that way. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Hey, we're at the point now in the show where we're going to have to take our first break for free Dreamlanders. You are going to hear a few commercials for paying members. We will be right back. We are back on the unseen. And I'm with my guest, Paul Hynek, and we are talking about his father, J. Allen Hynek, and his role in modern UFO history. Now, this is something I have to ask. Now, your father is presented as sort of an embodiment of, like, you know, the Eisenhower era, you know, working for the government, doing the hard work, doing the good work. And he has a beard, which is a little out of place. I mean, at the time, that would have been something of a beatnik or an artist would have had a beard. I've just I've always wondered, you know, why he had a beard. <laughs> I gave, you know, I mentioned that I was at UFOCon 2020. And when I was talking, I showed uh, an image of a tie that was my father's that I gave to Aidan Gillen, who plays my TV father. And it's a really narrow tie. And this one guy in the audience kept saying, looks like a beatnik. And he just kept saying it during the presentation. So I finally said, okay, if it makes you happy. Yes, my dad was a beatnik. Um, yeah, I don't really know why he had a beard. But he had that for a good long time. And of course, it made him the, you know, the quintessential absent-minded professor type. But yeah, I mean, he had some narrow ties also. And I still have one of his ties that was the solar system, which is perfectly fitting for a, a nerdy astronomer. Good. I, I, I kind of asked that. I was hoping for some something. I suspected there might be nothing there. But um, I mean, the beard was always there, you know, even the gray beard, you know, in, in near the end there. Yeah, I think I may be in, you know, People, I guess men were often clean cut then, but I think it was probably an exception for academics, you know, who are always a little bit eccentric. And beatniks, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Do you remember the TV show in the 1970s? There was a television show in 78, 79 called uh, Project UFO, and it was about Project Blue Book? No, I don't. Um, I mean, I have vague memories about it, but I really don't remember, and I don't even know if I watched it, so I, I really have no recollection of that. Okay, it was pretty bad. but um, So that came after Star Wars and after Close Encounters, and um, it was the executive producer was Jack Webb, so it had this kind of cop show vibe to it. Right. Just the UFOs, man, just the UFOs. But, uh, no men in black in that show. Right. Uh, Jacques Vallée, have you, talked, have you met Jacques Vallée? Of course, he's a, he's a longtime family friend. Oh, my word. Oh, that must be wonderful. So yeah. now I heard him say something speaking about your father, and he said um, that he was very cautious. He was a very conservative, cautious person on how he presented the evidence. He was very much a scientist. And the way he said it was sort of the implication was that he had a very conservative message publicly, your father, while his private speculations might allow for let's say something more intriguing than, than he would say publicly. And uh, do have you sat with Jacques Vallée and talked to UFOs? I have. I've actually 
uh, moderated a panel with Jacques and Richard Dolan, and then I had a, uh, a nice discussion on stage with Jacques about AI in UFOs at a conference in San Francisco, and I, I know him personally quite well. Jacques Vallée is, is a tremendous man, and yeah, to your, to your point about what he said about my father being conservative, I, I think it's because my father felt there were sort of two levels to ufology. One of the main insights my father had was that he was not studying UFOs. He was studying UFO reports. And there is an important distinction between those. And because he was studying the reports, that's what allowed him to come up with a classification system of close encounters, first, second, and third kind, daylight disks, nocturnal lights, etc. And so he was very comfortable speaking about the UFO phenomena deserving serious scientific attention. Because... You know, people will say he went from a skeptic to a believer, but I don't think he would have liked the word believer. That's not really a word that scientists traffic with. Um, I think he would have preferred that people said he went from a skeptic to accepting the accumulated weight of the data, indicating that there was a bona fide phenomenon. That he'd be plenty comfortable talking about in any forum. But where he'd be more conservative is talking about things like the provenance of aliens and UFOs, because that goes beyond science. He could talk about, he did talk about how he thought that the extraterrestrial hypothesis didn't really explain the totality of the phenomena, but he was not as comfortable speaking about that because that's just not what a scientist does. You know, he, he can study reports and, and find commonalities and try to ferret out reports that don't merit attention and shine a light more on the ones that do. But then when you start talking about where they come from, I think you'll find a scientist, even one like my father, who people are looking to, uh, will be a little bit more hesitant to talk about his own personal opinions. Uh, do you know Paula Harris? Of course. I've been texting with her all day today. So she said something, and I, I remember her talking about this, and I can't remember where she said it, but I'm paraphrasing from memory. When she was working for your father, which would have been between 1980 and 1986, yeah. She said that um, that he would sit and listen to the people, these contactees, these people who had had what we would now call abduction experiences. Your father would sit with these people and and let them talk and let them talk and let them talk. And sh she at the time said that made her uncomfortable because she was like, why is he listening to these outlandish stories? I'm quite certain Paula has come around in, in the last um, 30 years or so. But does that sound like your father? Well, I don't remember him sitting patiently when I was telling him outlandish stories. <laughs> uh, that's a little bit different. But yeah, you know, what, from what I remember, um, you know, my father, you know, what, somebody once asked him if the Pascagoula case happened. And that was one of the cases my father really liked. And I've, I've become friends now with Calvin Parker. Um, and that's a case he investigated closely over the years. And somebody asked him, did that case happen? And my father's response was, how the hell would I know? I wasn't there. But I believe that they believe it happened. So when my father was speaking with somebody, often when he often was speaking with somebody regarding a UFO experience, he knew that it could be a very traumatic experience for them and that they may not have felt comfortable speaking with anybody in the world before talking with my father. This happened quite a lot that they would not share with family members, certainly not with the press or men in black or anybody, but they felt that they could unload it when my father came along because he was a sympathetic and knowledgeable figure. So I think my father felt he had a duty to listen, hear these people out because they're not just recounting uh, an auto accident that happened the day before. They are recounting what many times he felt that they believed was the most single most traumatic experience of their life. So it's a little bit hard to be snippy and curt with someone who is describing something that just has imprinted upon their soul. And then did, was he doing research on the uh, abduction phenomena at the time? I guess the contact phenomena, let's say. Well, I mean, that's part and parcel uh, of the whole phenomena. And I think, you know, I like to think that that's the reason he called his first book the UFO experience and why he called them close encounters and not sightings. 
because for so many people, as we've seen, you know, dramatized in Project Blue Book and, and, even, and even more so in Close Encounters, the movie, people report many aspects of the experience that go beyond seeing a ship hovering in the sky. Absolutely. Yeah. Or coming out of the water or whatever it is that there's this communication perhaps before, during or after the sighting. Um, and this type of, yeah, this type of feeling of communication that can be a far more powerful component of the overall experience than just seeing some type of crap. I'm quite certain he must have seen the patterns, even in those early years of that type of research. Um, you know, the patterns of people, you know, having a traumatizing experience, having a peak experience in their life, and then the aftermath, which was actually covered quite clearly in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which where yeah. um, one of the things that gets very commonly reported is, and it's right there in the modern uh, MUFON, they have a, a little form that they fill out when they go to speak to a witness. And one of the questions they have in the form, this is just for a sighting, if I'm remembering this correctly, this is not even associated with the abduction type report, this is just a sighting. One of the questions is, have you had any psychic experiences since your sighting? And and that was exactly what happened to uh, Roy Neary in the, the character in Close Encounters, um, played by Richard Dreyfus. He had psychic experiences. He was building 3D models and he intuitively knew how to, you know, get to that secret air base or that secret space base on the backside of Devil's Tower. And that must have come from from real reports. Well, you know, there are a lot of aspects in the movie Close Encounters that did come from my father's recounting to Steven Spielberg of what had happened in actual reports. One of the funner ones is, you know, the UFOs going through the toll booths, which was from a real case that happened on the border of, of uh, Ohio and Pennsylvania. I had no idea because I just watched that movie recently. And I remember thinking that was a little bit like... um uh, you know, that was sort of the 70s and that was this kind of a Smokey and the Bandit era of, of comedy movies, you know, with, with cops chasing the bad guys and almost like hillbilly music playing. So that that scene in particular had that funny kind of 70s highway cop movie right. vibe to it. Right. And you remember that old guy holding up a sign saying, stop and be friendly. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the cops basically saying they're, you know, they're hugging the road, they're hugging the road, and then the UFOs fly off the road and the cop follows them right off the, the, yeah, the right. lip of the road there. Do you know Ann Eller? Yes. Uh, for the listeners who don't know, Ann Eller worked as a secretary for your father. Right. I'm not sure, but it would have been in the last few years of his life. Yeah, and, in Arizona. In Arizona, yeah, after he had moved from Illinois to Arizona. That was correct. I got that. He moved from Illinois to Arizona at that point. Yes, yep. in about 1985. And I've met her. She's very composed and very grounded. She has had the experience of direct contact. She talks about it straight up. She's an abductee. So here we have an abductee in the office with your father, and not just an abductee, but kind of an abductee out on the fringes of things where she's channeling and she's having psychic visions and she has these kind of, you know, premonitions of, of uh, I'll just say it, you know, a coming change in human history. And at the same time, she was also secretary at the White House. So a very trustworthy individual, in my opinion. Now, she... She, have you read her book uh, called um, Dragon in the Sky? I have not. It's really fun. She talks about your father. And it's, you can tell she had a great fondness for your father. And here, I'm just going to read one little quote here. This is from Anne Eller's book, uh, Dragon in the Sky, which I think was published around 2008 or so. I was always teasing and sometimes begging Alan to tell me about his own paranormal experiences. He would just grin and brush off the subject. On the last visit I had with him before he died, he looked at me very intently and said, I want you to know that I have had my own UFO experiences. And then she writes, it was his parting gift to me. And she, that's as much as she said in the book. And does that come as a surprise to you to hear that? No. Um, there are two incidents that he has mentioned, one in Canada and one from a plane. and. I think that he was, you mentioned him being hesitant to talk about certain things. I think he was hesitant to talk about that because he thought he could do the most good by being sort of an impartial 
witness to the phenomenon as opposed to someone who said, I have been contacted or I have seen something. And both of his experiences were a single witness. Um, so it's, it's just one witness and it's not all, it doesn't rise to the level that he would like to have in the case. But you know, I think he felt that he had to keep three groups mildly unhappy that he was doing a good balancing job. And that would be the, the military and the government as one group, uh, mainstream science, and then say believers in UFOs. Um, because if he went too far in any one of those directions, then he was going, you know, going sort of out of out of kilter. And if he were to say, you know, not only are there thousands of reports and commonalities and radar corroboration and Air Force pilots and this and this and this, but I've seen them myself, that would have really dented his credibility and his his legitimacy, I think, in his eyes to be able to come out as a scientist and speak about a phenomena from an arm's length point of view. Fair enough. Fair enough. Hey, we're at the point now where we are going to be taking our second break. For free Dreamlanders, you're going to hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen with my guest, Paul Hynek, and we are talking about his father, Alan Hynek, and his important role in the history of UFOs. Now, just before the break, you told me something that I did not know, that your father actually feels he had two sightings, two UFO sightings. Is there much to say about these stories? Not really. One was uh, something he saw in the sky from our vacation cabin in northern Ontario, Canada. And the other one was something he saw from a plane and actually took a picture of. And do you have that picture? Uh, I, somewhere. Somebody's got it somewhere. That's, that's what I think. And it may even be in a book somewhere, but I, I don't have my hand on it right now. Now, in the grand scheme of things, oftentimes a picture, you get a little dot off in the sky and it could be anything. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. if you take your iPhone on a beautiful full moon and try to take a picture of the full moon, yeah. it doesn't look like much more than a single star in the sky. So yeah. um, cameras are. He used to say he used to say even in the days before Photoshop that a thousand pictures were worth a word. <laughs> Uh, do you know Jenny Randalls? Yes. She's a researcher from England. She, I, this is, I don't know her. I've never met her. I've tried to uh, reach out to her. To, but she, um, she's on Facebook and she left a, a comment on um, a post about the show. And uh -huh. she was a little dismissive of the show saying like, well, they didn't get it quite right. And she said, but what they did capture was your father's subtle sense of humor. Yeah. She feels like that was captured in the show and she knew your father. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's partly due to my brother Joel and I, two of the five children of, of my father and my mother, the others being Scott, Roxanne, and Ross, uh, being involved with it and infusing it with things that only we would know. Two of my favorite things so far are about my mom and my dad. So in the second season, uh, when trying to get in a locked door, my TV dad says, confound it. And that's a phrase he used to say quite often in real life. So people who know him, who see that, that will ring true for them. And in the first season, I think in the third episode, my TV mom goes into a hardware store wanting to get a bomb shelter. <laughs> I saw, I remember and that. Yeah. The, <laughs> right. And the clerk sort of dismissively tells her, when your hubby gets back into town, because she had said he's out of town, when your hubby gets back into town, then I'll be happy to explain it to him. And she says, well, Hubby's gone, so wifey wants to know how to do it right now. Um, and after that that episode aired, I got two texts from family members saying, that's exactly what Mimi would have said. And I said, I know. I gave them that line. Oh, that's great. That, that makes me feel good. I, 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 The show at times can be a little frustrating for me because I'm wanting it to be one thing and it's just racing off in another direction. It's pure entertainment, but that, that actually makes me feel good that that kind of thing is is snuck into the show. Yeah. And there are a lot of things that my brother and I have given input on, you know, as knowledgeable about UFOs as the producer and the creator, uh, Sean Jablonski and David O'Leary uh, are respectively. And, and the former great executive of history, Arturo and Terrian, there's a, a tendency for writers when they're treating a scientist who they think is brilliant to just sort of have like a black hole towards Spock where they always talk about logic and things not being 
rational and using the word logic in a physics context. Well, logic has nothing to do with physics. And he's not a robot who's just marching along the science tracks all the time. He's a very warm man with an over-fondness for punts. And so we had to, over the course of the two seasons, we've had them dial down the sort of logic and things like that and help flesh out more nuances of the character. And I'm, I'm gratified to see that, that Jenny felt that way. Did your father ever have a run-in with Men in Black or know about them? Yeah, he certainly knew about them. Um, I don't know for sure if he had a direct encounter with them. He, he, he spoke about them, and he certainly knew of their presence. Um, as to where he thought they were from, I, I, I'm guessing he would have thought they were from some other organ of the government. You know, we tend to think the government is this one monolithic block operating in lockstep in some rational, coordinated fashion. But when you dig under the surface, what you find all too often is all these different turf wars and fiefdoms and agencies fighting at cross purposes. So you could easily have Project Blue Book, which was largely a public relations exercise. And then as of 1953, the 4602nd Air Intelligence Service Squadron, which is more like this sort of crash retrieval rapid response team operating against each other. And that's still just in the Air Force. Then you can have the Army doing something very different. And, you know, the Air Force attitude at the time was nothing to see here, folks. Please disperse. We have it under control. And, of course, now, in the current days, the Navy has a very different public stance. So Men in Black could easily have been from another organ of the government working against the interests of Project Blue Book. Do you know Terry Lovelace? Yes, I do. I was just talking with him on Sunday. I knew I, you, I, I knew you were both at that same event together. I'm good friends with Terry. Now, Terry has a story from 1977 that's very unsettling involving yeah, the Air from, Force. From yeah. Right. yeah. And where basically yeah. he was given uh, the truth serum. He was given um, sodium pentothal and was hypnotized to to share what he knew about his UFO event. And so that implies, you know, a men in black style insider group, let's say. Yeah. And, and Terry is a very credible witness. He was um, in the Air Force for six years. He was an attorney. And uh, he comes across as, as I said, very articulate, very cogent and very convincing. I agree completely. I agree completely. Uh, do you know Phil Imbrogno? I don't remember if I met him. A, a lot of names in ufology I've known for virtually my whole life, but sometimes it's hard to remember if I met them when I was a kid or not. So, yeah, so that's a name I certainly know and a face I've most likely met as well. Okay, so Phil Imbrogno worked on the book Night Siege with your father, right. and that was published posthumously a year after he died in 1987. And it's all about the Hudson River Valley sightings in New York State. And this would have encompassed... The, the time that Whitley Strieber was living in the Hudson River Valley, having his own experiences. His book also came out yes, in right. 1987. Right. Um, so, you know, those books sort of came out parallel. Now, Phil Imbrogno, uh, I want to be careful how I said this. I did an interview with Phil about 10 or 11 years ago. It was a great interview. I thought it's still on my website. and um, But he got caught if I understand correctly, falsifying and basically claiming that he went to MIT. And it turned out that he did not. Oh. And he basically vanished from the field after getting called out on what appears to be an outright lie. So does that put into question his, his work to a degree? Absolutely. But his books read like other UFO books I've certainly read. And they're certainly straight in line with other things that, that I've read. So it certainly seems like they're uh, I mean, I'm just thinking of Night Siege, and and uh, he did another book, which is a collection of what amount to short stories, or just you know case after case after case, and they feel very similar to the types of things I've encountered. So, unfortunately, yes, he's a he's a disappeared from the scene, but he tells a story, and I think he actually told it when I did the interview with him. I I, I might have this wrong. Um, when he was talking with your father, you know, why are all these sightings clustered? around this one area in New York State, the Hudson River Valley. Mm -hmm. right. And I'm doing this from memory. He said, you know, Alan would sort of take his pipe and take it out of his mouth and say, <laughs> and say, windows, windows. 
implying there was a portal of some sort. Ah. And, that, you know, that, that seems pretty sophisticated for 1987. Uh, yeah, and I, I think your point is, is, is valid. I mean, Phil may have had a kerfuffle regarding his academic credentials. That doesn't mean that everything else he says is not true. And uh, back in 97, I mean, my father and Jacques and others are on record back in the 80s talking about what some may consider even more exotic provenances for UFOs, you know, such as another dimension or a manifestation of our collective unconscious. So these were not far-out ideas to people that were seriously studying the phenomena 30, 40 years ago. Very good, very good. Hey, so here's a question for you. Have you ever seen anything? Well, I have to ask answer that question with a yes and an asterisk. Okay, that's fair. If you ask me, have I seen a UFO? I would say no. And by that, I mean, I don't see, I, I haven't seen anything that's risen to the level of what my dad would reasonably have considered to be a UFO. It's not just you see something, you don't know what it is, right? But following this strand of perhaps UFOs coming from another dimension, that is a, an area that I have done personal research work in and did have what felt like contact. I keep on going. I think I know where you're going with this. Okay. So are you familiar with a book called Alien Information Theory? No. Okay. So I was with a friend of mine, uh, Nova Spivak, who's a fascinating guy in his own right, who knew about my father and asked where my father thought UFOs came from. I said, well, he found that extraterrestrial hypothesis probably didn't explain all the phenomena, and he was interested in things like another dimension, perhaps. Um, and my friend Nova said, you should read a book called Alien Information Theory. I said, I love the title already. So I read it, and it's about people who take DMT and feel that they are, I don't even know the right word, transported, or they wind up in what feels like could be another dimension with being highly intelligent beings there in a realm or dimension or world that they feel is hyper real. In other words, more real than this world here. And that was too good for me to pass up. So I've started doing DMT to see if I can't have that same type of experience. This is fascinating. I have read Rick Straussman's book, um, DMT, yeah, Spirit The Spirit Molecule. Molecule. Yes, which I thought was wonderful. As have I. Fascinating book. So The Spirit Molecule is an account of Rick Strassman's clinical supervisory work in administering intravenous doses of DMT in New Mexico um, in a university setting. Um, and the commonalities of the reports are very interesting, and they have some resemblances to the, sort of the patterns that you see in UFO reports. Uh, so I read that book, and now this alien information theory is sort of more of a intellectual groundwork for why this, you know, how the universe is all information and how this other realm may well exist. And um, I'm going to meet uh, the author who's coming and speaking at Contact in the Desert in late May, June, where I will be speaking as well. Oh, I'm so envious. This sounds great. And so, so I, I got to hear, what's your experience of taking DMT? All right. So there's a lot I can say, but I'll just boil it down to I did have an experience similar to what other people have reported, and I felt that I was in another world where I saw and felt the fabric of the universe being created in front of me, and there was a, I don't know how to describe, uh, but Joe Rogan has described these things, and I think it's a very apt description as complex geometric patterns made of love and understanding. And so... There, well, there's this presence all around me. And once I got my, my sea legs about me, because it's just the definition of overwhelming, I said, excuse me, are you the intelligence behind what we perceive as UFOs and aliens? And I got an answer. The answer was, we can't explain in a way that you would understand. And I thought to myself, well, I understand no. 
So it sounds like there's some amount of yes in what you're saying. And the next thing I knew, I'm, I'm transported back. So for me, that was a particularly intriguing and tantalizing uh, experience uh, such that I want to do that uh, again and see if I can't start to make some headway on some kind of beachhead on establishing if this is real or merely a figment of the world's most powerful psychedelic. What I can say is that I have read a lot of UFO contact reports, and, I've, and a lot of these have people, not through hypnosis, just completely remembering the thing without any use of hypnosis, remembering their interactions, the conversations that were taking place. And they would have, most often, a telepathic conversation with these beings, and they would ask these questions, and they would get answers just like what you said, you know, like, are you angels? And then they would say, like, not like you perceive us to be. I'm paraphrasing that one from memory, but that's pretty close. Yeah. And I, there's another one which I've always loved is this fairly religious person was taken aboard a UFO, and then she interacted with the beings, and she said, like, figuring they would know, she asked, like, did God create the universe? And they said, no, he's creating it moment by moment, ah. which I think is a really good answer. I thought that was like, ooh, that adds a, like a extra depth. So within the UFO lore, you get these sort of cryptic answers very similar to your DMT answer that you you asked a question in that other realm. I mean, and, and this yeah. is another thing that shows up is when people are in the presence of these beings or on a ship, they will often, and I just wrote this down, you, you said more real than real. This environment is more real than real. That shows yeah. up a lot, not only in the UFO contact lore, but in the near-death experience too. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. And so, you know, one of the things my father was intrigued by with UFOs, this sort of commonality of reports from people who had had no communication between themselves. And now when you establish the sort of commonality of perceived responses that people have in these experiences in both DMT and with UFOs, that's fascinating to me. I agree. It's absolutely fascinating. And then, and then you add, um, do you know a Ray Hernandez? Uh, I know the name, but I can't place it. Okay, so he started an organization along with Dr. Edgar Mitchell, the fellow who walked on the moon, uh, the astronaut, and he started an organization, I think it was originally called Free. It's changed its name since then. I think it's called the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Foundation at this point. And they did an exhaustive amount of research into the contact experience. And they, and they say straight up, like, we're not interested in UFOs. We're interested in the, in the experiences of people having contact. And... This book is like 850 pages thick. This is a this is like monster of a book. And it is just exhaustive with charts and tables and graphs and 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 a lot of research went into that book. And uh if I remember correctly, statisticians, retired statisticians from Harvard did all the number crunching for that. So he is so dedicated to having this subject being taken seriously. Now, he, on a personal level, he tells a story, and I'm going to paraphrase it for remember. He's He lives in Miami, and he's making a left turn in traffic, and he's listening to the radio. And he's halfway through this left turn in traffic, and all of a sudden, vroom, he's like vaulted into this other realm. And he describes it as a giant Ferris wheel. Mm. And on this Ferris wheel, there's like this core hub, and it's like rotating and rotating. It's big and iron and, and gigantic. And But he looks at every spoke, and as every spoke goes by, I think he gets the impression, or it's actually written on the spoke. One spoke will go by UFO contact. The next spoke will go by psychedelic experience. The next spoke will go by shamanic initiation. Um, and then deep meditation. I'm doing this from memory. I might not get them all. Uh, the near-death experience. Right. Um, so these divergent elements are going around, and the, the hub, he, like he zeroes in on the hub, right? So there's these spokes. The hub of this giant, monstrous wheel was I think he intuitively knew it or was actually labeled as consciousness. And then whoop, he's back in traffic. He's finishing the left turn. It felt like he was in this other realm for 20 <laughs> minutes. The same song was on the radio. And it was just like he was taken out of this reality for one frame of the movie and then, you know, had a nearly a half hour long, 20 minute long experience in this other realm and then snapped right back in. And that was the impetus of his of his exhaustive research that that mystical event 
Wow, that that's fascinating. Um, You'll meet him. You'll meet I, him someday. It, he's he's part of the whole scene. He goes to conferences all the time. Okay, so he's part of our tribe. Okay, he's cool. part of our tribe. Yes. Wow. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Sorry, I held the floor for a little bit there. Um, hey, so we've got just a few minutes left of the show. Um, you answered every question I had written down. I, that rarely happens. This has been great. I got all the answers I wanted. Is there anything you want to say about about your father or about the show? Oh, well, um, one of the interesting things is um, the episode that just aired, the, the sixth episode of the second season, which I hope many of the listeners watched, had me in there in a cameo role as the cameraman who gets hoisted up on a crane at the end of the episode. And the interesting thing about that was, so therefore I had a cameo role in the show about my father in an episode in which they did a flash forward to the set of Close Encounters, which was the movie about my father's work in which he himself had a cameo role. So the, the layer upon layer, the knot is tightly tied and all the little things that are linked yeah. together there. That's right. The meta Gordian knot. Yes. So here's my little thing, which there's two ways to think about it. either one. Someone read my book, the script writers of Project Blue Book, or they did exactly what you would do in a spooky movie is have an owl sound effect. Now, I don't know if you know anything about me, but I have written a few books on owls and the UFO contact experience. And uh, I'm asking for owl stories, and I'm getting them. So I'm putting the energy out and saying, if anyone has an interesting owl story that involves a UFO, I want to hear it. So what's very common is for people to be, let's say, walking in the woods at night. They look up, they see an owl, and then owl flies off. And the next thing that happens is a flying saucer floats over their head. That is surprisingly normal, that story. Uh, and owls have been known as part of the UFO lore since Whitley Strieber's book in 1987, really, but uh, but I have gone a little, I've really dug into this one deep. So at the end of, I think it was actually the episode where your mother uh, goes to the, you know, gives the, says wifey to the, to the hardware store owner. I think it was at the end of that episode. Yeah. There's a scene where your father is with his um, captain friend from the Air Force, and they're waiting to see the UFO that I think someone hinted that they might see it from this hilltop. And it's nighttime, and then sure enough, classic little things, uh, science fiction-y little things happen. The the radio starts to right, get right. zapped and stuff. And then the big, impressive UFO hovers right over the car and floats off into the horizon and disappears. And as it disappears, the eerie noise of the flying saucer fades away, and then it is replaced by the sound of an owl hooting in the forest. Now, <laughs> now when I... So what happened... The day after that one aired, I didn't see it when it originally aired. The day after that one aired, I got a lot of people get a hold of me and like, they they read your book. They read your book. There was an owl and UFO thing. So um, that may be nothing at all. But in a funny way, felt like someone had been paying attention to at least a little bit of my research. That's cool. And I'll tell you, the people involved with the show have an almost encyclopedic knowledge of the phenomena and are, are devotees and avid readers. So it's quite possible, Mike. And it wasn't that exciting to me because one of the things that is is absolutely appropriate, if you're making a scary movie and someone's in the woods, you are allowed, by tradition, to have an owl hooting in the woods. So, um, <laughs> ah, okay. Right. <laughs> this has been great. How do people get a hold of you if they want to they contact you? Uh, they could email me, paulheinick at gmail. Great. Great. Do you have a website concerned connected with any of this or...? Nah. Yeah, I, I should do one, but um, I, I don't. Not, not, not related to this stuff. I don't. Great. Thank you. And good luck with the, with the show. And um, as silly as it sounds, it's a, it's a kind of Hollywood. It's very Hollywood, but it's, it's brought your father to the attention to a huge number of people that never, ever would have heard of him. Yeah. It's, you know, and that's what I, I look at the show. People say, oh, that's not true. That didn't happen. That didn't happen. It really doesn't matter. It's the broad strokes are a respectful portrayal of an honest scientist who was confronted with a phenomena he didn't like and then ran with it and became an expert in the field. And in so doing, brought his wife along for the ride as well. That's what the show is about. 
specific portrayals of this or that incident that may or may not have happened don't really matter. It has, like Close Encounters before it, in its day, it has opened up the tent to allow more people to come in and have a serious conversation about a highly stigmatized phenomenon. So I think pieces of largely of fiction, like Project Blue Book and Close Encounters, they do the public a great service by moving the needle on the level of discourse of very, very strange topics. How is the show doing? It's my understanding that it's incredibly popular. It is. It was the, um, the ratings are very strong again the second year. And the first year, it was the most popular new scripted cable show of the year. Wow. And at one point, I think it was January, February last year, it was the second highest rated show on all of cable. So this tells me that the, the public is hungry for this. Uh, apparently, that's exactly what ratings measure, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, zombies and UFOs kind of play well on TV. And this is, you know, this has got the added component of based on true incidents. So, and with, uh, you know, fantastic actors, you know, my TV dad, it's not super creepy at all to have the Game of Thrones supervillain play your TV dad. And he's a wonderful guy and he, he does a very good portrayal. And the people involved with the show have a lot of passion for the subject and I think it shows. And I wish you great success with the show and, and I, and, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing where it's going. And, and Andrea is downstairs right now and, uh, and, I, and she was basically, she wanted me to tell you that she is a big fan and she has been binge watching the whole series. So, and I've seen uh, most of it. I've missed a few episodes. Okay, well, cool. Tell her I say thanks and I hope you guys enjoy tonight's episode. We'll be looking for you. Cool. Okay, thanks. This was this was great. Uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to meet someday out there in the future. Cool, I hope so, Mike. Thank you. Okay, take care. Bye now. This is Mike, and I am chiming in after the editing. Uh, during the interview, at one point, I spoke about a visionary experience that happened to Ray Hernandez, and I wanted to list the meaning of the spokes on the giant wheel that Ray had seen in this sort of otherworldly experience. And I only got a few. I got them right, but I only got a few, but I wanted to list them completely here. So I'm going to do exactly that. So picture a big wheel and the spokes on the wheel. Each spoke is labeled. I'll just read them off. UFO contact, out-of-body experiences, lucid dreams, mystical meditation, remote viewing, shamanic journeys, channeling, spirits and ghosts, the near-death experience. That is a total of nine spokes. Now, Ray has come to call these spokes the contact modalities. And at the center of this wheel, at the center of this giant Ferris wheel, all these spokes connect to a central hub, and that is labeled as consciousness. Now, that was his experience in this mystical state. Now, Ray calls them contact modalities, and that's as good a term as any to describe these... I guess, access points to another reality. And this is at the core of what I have been studying. And I really wish I could ask Dr. Hynek about, about his thoughts on exactly this. Now, given what Paul said in the interview, he described an experience on DMT. And DMT is basically the active ingredient in ayahuasca. And ayahuasca is certainly central to what we would consider a shamanic journey. So given that, the experience that Paul had on DMT, where he got to ask these beings, these highly intelligent beings, the question, you know, are you connected with the UFOs? Are you connected with UFOs and aliens? And they didn't say no. I would say, sure, this can loosely be put into the same contact modality with consciousness at the hub. If you want to hear more from Paul Hynek, specifically on The Blue Book Show, 
I am linking in the show notes an excellent interview done by my friend Ryan Sprague on his podcast, Somewhere in the Skies. You could easily search that out, but I'll put a link in the show notes. I think that would be a really good companion to the interview you just listened to. And if you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.